Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here tonight with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing tonight? Good. Pretty good. I mean, if you um, were in that camp of people who thought the Oilers could build on their final four um, showing last year and um, be a pretty dominant team in the NHL, and I was in that camp, I thought they might be one of the top three teams in the league this year. Um, at the start of the year and um, the last couple games um, against good teams they've absolutely dominated the games and they they did so against Winnipeg 6-3 tonight it was you know it was like they were playing the last two games instead of the Toronto Maple Leafs and the Winnipeg Jets it was like the San Jose Sharks and the Anaheim Ducks the way the orders dominated these games tonight it was 17-8 on the grade A shots and on the um, subset of five alarm shots which are even more dangerous it was 9-2 for the Oilers so it kind of hurts to give up three more goals than five alarm chances, doesn't it? Yeah, it happens. The end, but the third period kind of got kind of got away on them, didn't it? Yeah, it was a little loosey goosey out there and crazy. Yeah. Actually, we'll, we'll get into that. So, Bruce, this is our two good things, two bad things, and two numbers podcast because it was a big and exciting Oilers win. We'll go with two Important good things each. It, it was, wasn't it? Why don't, why don't yeah, you I mean, start there, off? There were one, two in the wild card race. I mean, yeah. seven, seven, eight in the West. You don't want to be hanging around down there for long, and you want to put some distance between yourself and the other wild card team. And I think Edmonton's now four points in front with an immediate rematch coming up. But the worst they can do at this moment is a split, and they could get a three-two split, or much better still, they could just sweep this uh, weekend series, and that would be. Uh, Make a statement, but uh, uh, lots of good things to enjoy about this game tonight, David. And uh, I think we're we're uh, <coughs> going to pick out a couple of goals. They're going to kind of be in a funky order because mine are in the third period and yours were elsewhere in the game. But uh, the uh, five nothing goal that really kind of put this thing on ice. And the play here, the three-way passing play. I mean, this is Ryan Nugent Hopkins' 30th goal of the of the year for the first time in his career, 30 goals for Nuge. Nuge. And uh, uh, Connor McDavid with the assist and Leon Dreisaitl with the second assist. And poor old big save Dave Riddick in the net for for Winnipeg in the third after the Oilers blew out Connor Hellebuch. And Poor, I, I almost felt Riddick's pain here. I still I still remember him doing the stick toss in Drysaddle's face, and I bet your Leon does too. And <laughs> that was a oh, big that, was, that, that yeah. was a big mistake by Riddick. His his career has been on a downward spiral since that moment. That was the pinnacle for him in a January game. Anyway, uh, this was a play. I, I'm I'm just going to go to the end of the play. The last three um, guys to touch it, which were the big three. And first of all, Leon had it behind the goal line on the left wing side, and he pulled a hard backhand pass right through his legs, right across the crease to McDavid on the uh, on in the far right faceoff circle. And one Winnipeg defender just tickled the puck and changed its direction ever so slightly. And uh, Riddick, he kind of lunged for it and missed. So he's already kind of off balance and leaning to his left. And then... McDavid collects the puck, and Riddick is pretty sure he's going to pound one on net, except for guess what? He doesn't. He goes right across the 
the slot to nuge on the other far post. And by this time, I mean, I said to my wife that uh, Riddick reminded me of the uh, of the uh, uh, the running dog trying to turn the corner on the linoleum floor. It's <laughs> just getting in, trying to get back across to face this deadly finish from Nugent Hopkins, and he just had absolutely no chance. That was just uh, just another uh, mastery of of puck handling and passing by the orders, like. McDavid completely owned Riddick after after Drysaddle made the great pass and McDavid made a great feint and feed of his own and Nuge buried it. I mean, what's not to like about that? Just a fantastic three-way passing play by three of the most skilled players in the game. Yeah, that was. They were playing. They should have been playing the Harlem Globetrotters theme song <laughs> after Drysaddle's between the legs, but uh-huh. bat, you know, but. You know, between the legs, backhand pass. <laughs> Sweet exactly. Georgia Brown. Exactly, Bruce. I mean, what a pass. <laughs> what a player Leon Dreisaitl is. And he really is showcasing. The last two games, the last two games is the first time I think we've seen a, a completely, what I see as a completely healthy Leon Dreisaitl. Completely Leon. Yeah, and I think he, he he's suffered maybe from like I don't know if he got the flu when they got through it because I think he's been injured. He did um, sick. That, mm-hmm. That's how I take his play this year. Mainly injured for much of the year, and then more recently kind of sick and little mm-hmm. off his game is how I would see it. But mm-hmm. he seems like he's fully healthy and playing skating as well as he skated in the past, which is you know he's a fantastic skater, especially for a player of his size. And that's what I'm most encouraged by is. To win the Stanley Cup, the Oilers need that Leon Dreisaitl. Mm-hmm. They're not going to win it with the Leon Dreisaitl that we saw, you know, as, as great as he was, second-leading scorer in the NHL through the first 60 games of the NHL season. You're just not going to win it with that Leon because um, it's so hard to win the Stanley Cup. Well, they need you him. You have to have 100%. everything firing on all cylinders. You need him at center, for instance, so you can't shut down that top line so easily. You need, you know, two options. Um, you know, the orders might actually have three good lines by the time the playoffs come around, but they really needed him um, flying. And that's what I love to see, Bruce, is just Leon Leon doing his thing. And the exhibition of skill mm-hmm. that he put on between passing and shooting, which you're going to get to in your second good thing, is, is just, um, it's out of this world how he can play hockey. He is such a fine hockey player. On, and um, that's what we've seen the last two games. What most encouraging for me, or one of the most encouraging things from this game, was that the one time that we saw him at full throttle speed. Yeah. It was on the back check. And it wasn't even on a back check on a play where he'd made the mistake and was trying to, you know, guilt is a great motivator, mm-hmm. right? But uh, it wasn't even his fault. They'd messed up the play on the other side. I think uh, uh, maybe McDavid and Bouchard got crossed up, and not for the only time in this game. And the Jets came out three on one shorthanded and Leon comes screaming into the frame from the outside the frame to the right. And he just comes roaring all the way back, basically to just take out the the third guy in the three on one. And the, the rusher decided, no, I'm just going to blast it because I don't have much time. But just the speed, he was overtaking the other Jets on a three on one jailbreak. And he was like going twice as fast as they were. This is not McDavid. This is Drysdale. He was flying. 
And it's so awesome to see that. Like, he's an extremely powerful skater, and we just haven't seen much of that aspect of that game. And I think there's been a couple of games this year where we see it for a while, and then he kind of kind of puts it in check. But uh, he there was just a, just a reminder of how fast he can be when he's feeling it and he's at the top of his uh, physical strength. And just fantastic uh, straight-out speed. And the motivation to use that speed in the defensive direction, which is uh, warm my heart, right? But, we haven't always seen that this year, but we won't well, get into no, that. Well, right no, or now. any year, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but anyway. he was he was plus three tonight, Leon, and let's just not get too far ahead on the numbers. For high danger scoring chances, he was eight to zero on ice for eight by the Oilers and zero for the uh, Jets. And I don't know what you've got because uh, you can tell he quicker than I what he, he how many he was involved in for the Oilers versus against, but it would be. Similarly one-sided, I'm sure. Yeah, he in terms of his individual involvement, right. he he, yeah. he made a major contribution to four, um, four grade A shots at even strength, mm-hmm. and he 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 didn't make one mistake on a grade right. A shot against. And on the power play, he was involved in five. Um, oh, okay, so nine major oh, contributions okay. to five grade A shots. Bruce, do you agree with my assessment? This is the first time we've seen him at a level yes. that we've pre- okay. I, I just, at his I, very top level, yeah. The last two games, right. he's been great. And I think some of the motivation for him, frankly, is that the team has gotten serious about, uh, you know, bringing in some some help, like uh, the stuff that was done at the deadline. And I'm guessing we'll talk a little bit about it at the end yeah. of the podcast. But I just think that Leon's sort of thinking to himself it's time to get down to business you know this is our team uh gm's you know really really gone out and gotten an outstanding player to help us uh uh get over that hump and uh, i gotta do my part and you know he just is, seems to be focused and right in there and you can criticize him for not always being that but it's hard these guys are humans and some of them have their foibles and and uh you know not everyone's pete rose it goes every bat at bat the exact same approach whether it's nine to one in the eighth inning or whether it's a world series on the line you know just the same all the time and and he's a uh uh little uh fair to say moody player does remind me of mark messier in that sense and mark had a lot of bad regular season games and he always dialed it up when it mattered most that's what people forget about Messier. He wasn't he wasn't always as a you know, didn't oh, know no. his A game. Not at all. Like he was he had some bad defensive moments, lots of them. Mm-hmm. Just like Drysaddle. They're very similar players in a lot of ways. And and I think and this is why I stress the need for a healthy dry settle, because I think in the playoffs Leon can be unstoppable if he's bringing this game and if he's healthy. And even even on one leg last year in the playoffs, yeah. he was nearly unstoppable. So just think if he's on two. Bruce, if he's healthy and the orders, if yeah. he's healthy, if the orders are healthy, and they get some goaltending, they will win the Stanley Cup this year. They okay. will. With that's my they're, that's they're certainly in it with a shot. That's my you know. that's my take on it. And it starts the moment it starts. Their Stanley, the true Stanley Cup run starts when Nugent Hopkins stands up for Yamamoto. That's the moment that the Stanley Cup run starts when they when they start to really battle for each other as a team. I just think that was such a huge moment, and I'm and it's not only you know it's it's a bit of a hyperbole me saying that because um, obviously it starts the moment they draft McDavid, but coming together as a team is also absolutely critical for any team that's going to win the Stanley Cup, and you need that kind of uh, you need that kind of 
team, uh, someone taking one for the team. Like he could have gotten Nugent Hopkins was fighting a bigger guy mm-hmm. and he just took him on in, in Hall. And tonight, my, um, my uh, first good thing is a Nugent Hopkins play, which was, which was so indicative of his play this year, which has seen an increased level of him digging in like he's never dug in before. And it's the Oilers' third goal, which kind of puts the, the game out of reach, you'd hope. It's halfway through the second period, and he comes back on the back check hard. It's a two-on-one, and he he charges back, and he takes the puck away and stops the, the Jets' attack, which is which is just fantastic. Like, it's it, we were seeing this kind of play all game long from the Oilers, this kind of hard back, back check. minutes for it, anyway. Yeah, much of the game until it got out of hand there. He, he pulls it off, then he tries to... Um, uh, make a stretch pass, it gets blocked, and then he makes another stretch pass. This time he hits Yamamoto for a breakaway. And I just I just thought, uh, Yamamoto's going to score because it was such a choice breakaway. It, you know, he had lots, he had no one on him. He was breaking in hard just from the right angle. He had full control of the puck, and you just get that sense, like he's going to score this time, and he did. He, he made an absolutely gorgeous uh, feint, stick feint, and then put it to his backhand and uh, lifted the puck up, hoisted the puck up. And it's very encouraging to see him um, have some success, Yamamoto have some success, because he's been injured repeatedly this year. It looked like he might be injured again from that hit um, from Justin Hall last game, which was a clean Mm -hmm. hit. It was. Um, It was a clean hit. (laughs) If an oiler had done it, I wouldn't be complaining about it. And, um, but it, you know, it, it was worrisome. Um, but he was he was good to go, and he was flying out there. And then you know he scored right after again. It's just so just good for Yamamoto, great for Nugent Hopkins. He's Ryan Nugent Hopkins has stepped up as a mature leader on this team in a way he never has before for the Oilers. Um, we've seen it in in certain games now and then, but this year it's been game in game out that Nugent Hopkins has shown that kind of um, intestinal fortitude. Uh, where he just digs into the game and and wills his team, helps will his team to victories and uh, when they need him to do so. Yeah, a fun part about that uh, play on the Nuge back check was uh, the play made by <coughs> Matthias Ekholm, who was actually the guilty party on the pinch at the at the offensive blue line that enabled the two on one, and he was scrambling to get back, and Nuge was scrambling to get back. And Nuge had a slight lead, and and Ekholm, from behind, Nuge just reached out with a stick and pushed him. Just gave him a little boost on the, you know, just sort of a, a second stage uh, rocket boost on the way back, and it speeded him up by about maybe five percent. But this was, I've seen it before where the guy got the push, but in this particular case, I'm not sure Nuge would have actually made it back to pick off that two-on-one cross-ice pass, but he had that extra little bit of speed. But I just like sort of the thinking and the sort of gamesmanship involved in that play. And Nuge took the boost and he used it to, to uh, you know, it was like a power pill, right, in a, in a video game. And he had just sort of this extra, extra speed that he could go to come back and make that defensive play. And then, you know, the one sort of pass that went nowhere, but then the second one that was diagonal pass from inside his own blue line to hit his swinger at the far blue line for the breakaway. It's breathtaking. Like the game went from potentially 2-1 to 3 nothing in maybe six seconds. Just yeah. completely turned around just like that. Incredible. Wonderful. Love you that. know, that, like that. <clears throat> that kind of boost, uh, 
you may I don't know if you watched uh, Roller Derby in the 19 Yes, oh, certainly did. Canadian, Skinny Minnie Miller. There was the Canadian uh, <laughs> Roller Derby League. And they would do that kind of play. Paul the Bear uh-huh. Rupert, you know, would give Jack yeah, Rabbit yeah. Johansson that push. Uh-huh. And, you know, he'd go shooting forward. And that's what, you know, that's what that kind of play reminds me of. I do that play in, in beer league hockey, Bruce. Only it's when guys other of the opposing team get around me, I give them a hard push to throw them off mm-hmm. balance. So let's, let's not get into that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, no, that, that was that fundamental to roller derby was this business of pushing. It's also fundamental to uh, uh, short track speed skating on the relays. They do that kind of stuff all the time. Where they, That's they right. Give the guys that boost in the hips when they're cha- when they're tagging up, they're actually pushing them as they tag. Yeah. And it's uh, it's an interesting strategy. Well, that's kind of what uh, Ekholm did with his stick, uh, basically pushing Nuge in the backside to uh, get back and make the defensive play, and he did. That was the best part of all. What is your second good thing, Bruce? Yeah. Well, I can now move on to the sixth goal. And this was Leon, again, with this such an amazing play where he broke in and around Josh Morrissey and was going in on uh, Winnipeg goal. And Morrissey, presumably thinking it's 5-1 in the third period, and these guys have been skating circles around us. It's time to make him pay a price. Took Leon down hard, right into the base of the goalpost. Like, uh, I didn't like how he went down. I was worried for a moment. The, the net even popped off its moorings. And Leon sort of looked around, got his bearings, and scrambled to his feet, and his eyes were just shooting daggers, you know. And then he noticed that the net was off the moorings and that the late penalty was on, and the Oilers still had the puck. So he, first of all, had the presence of mind to grab the net and in one attempt, perfectly put it back on the mooring, which the linesman usually takes him two or three tries to get it right with no pressure. And here he is in the middle of the play. Okay, fix this. Boom. Go stand over here. Get the puck. Boom. And uh, he's by the time he does get the puck, Riddick has come over, and he's left a hole about this big over his, by his ear yeah. and between his ear and the post and, and his... Uh, Sort of mask was up and over the crossbar, but there was, uh, I'm describing for listeners who don't have video, a puck-sized hole in the very top corner of the net short side, and zing, in it goes, right in this little tiny spot, right into the right into the short side of the uh, of the net to make it six to one. And Leon, he, he didn't even smile. He just, <laughs> he just kind of got up and glared and, and you know, to, to play the cool like he, he often does, you know. The eyes say one thing, but uh, it was just sort of his typical resting face. Let's call it that. And uh, <laughs> resting Leon face. Yeah, yeah, that, that's good. That's good. We'll call it that. <laughs> and uh, but uh, what a shot! What a shot! Wasn't Holy it Bruce? moly! Oh God, I just love that. And it's his first goal too, which is yeah. wasn't one of our good things. Like he got us right right under his armpit. Yeah. Um, the first goal was an amazing one too. He, you know, Bruce, it, a lot was made of his presence of mind. But if there's one thing that defines Leon Dreisaitl during a hockey game, it's presence of mind. He's always reading the game. He's yeah. always, he's always one or two steps ahead of almost every other player on the ice. Mm-hmm. That defines Leon Dreisaitl, both on the attack and on defense. And on defense, it doesn't work because he's, you know, he's overthinking instead of just fundamentally digging in mm-hmm. and playing his position. He's often like, oh, well, how could I pick off the pass and get a breakaway? Mm-hmm. Right? Like he's reading the play and 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 getting a little too cute at times, but 
this defines Leon as a player. He is so cool and calm uh, on the ice, and he he is such a smart hockey player. He, if anyone was going to make a play, that play, it was going to be to put the, the the net back on its moorings. It's Leon Draisaitl because he's just that's how he thinks. Gretzky was like that. Yes. Gretzky was a very very smart oh, hockey player, analytical and, and, thinker while the and, game was in process. Yeah. And what's the other thing they have in common? They're the the two. I don't know if Leon's the best passer of his era, but he's he's in the top three. I don't know. You'd have to look at you know, Kale McCarr's a pretty good passer. There's there might be some others that I'm not that I'm not oh, yeah. not mind. But Leon, you know, that's how you get to be that great passer is by having a total awareness of what's going on the ice. And we saw it on the backhand pass between his legs. I mean, it's just it's just his presence of mind on the ice is out of this world. My second good thing is the second goal of the game. And again, the game is very much in doubt. The Oilers have had a lot of power plays. They're up one nothing. This is early, um, early in the second period. And it's just a breakout play up the boards. And um, I just liked how every player executed on this play. And um, including Matthias Janmark. And I know there's a there's a, a, a segment of Oiler fans don't, who don't think a lot of Matthias Janmark. I'm not in that camp at all. I think a really I think a lot of him. I think he's a, a very uh, just an outstanding defensive winger. Um, mm-hmm. He's a good penalty killer, mm-hmm. and he he's got some skill on the attack. Not great skill. Like he's he's not you know he doesn't have a great shot. Right. He's not a great goal scorer or anything like that. But he can handle the puck, and he's willing to work. And on this mm-hmm. one, he he. His work up the boards makes a difference in getting the advancing the puck up the ice. It goes to Drysaddle, who makes a really nice pass to Nuge, and Nuge, Nuge kind of I think muffs the first shot or gives it away, and it comes. Demello puts it right back to Nuge, so he gets a second chance. Meanwhile, Matthias Janmark is going to the end. He gets knocked down to the ice, but he gets back up again, and he charges in front of the goalie just as Nuge shoots. So there's a flying screen, and Nuge mm-hmm. Nuge's incredible shot goes right through the Jets. D-man's legs, I also think. So there's like a double screen in front of Hellebuck, and that's and it's a great place shot, and it goes in. So all three of the forwards on that play mm-hmm. um, made fantastic, uh, fantastic offensive plays, including Janmark. Yeah, Janmark gets uh, precious little uh, love from some quarters, it seems like, <clears throat> and some. I mean, some people seem to think that he's utterly useless. And I don't see that at all. Like, he, you know, he's not flashy, uh, but he's smart and he's a battler. He's strong on the boards, wins lots of battles, you know, uh, doesn't make a lot of dumb plays. And, you know, he's just a fair, fairly safe, smart, and I would say effective player. I mean, he's a $1.25 million veteran forward. It's not like they're paying him 5 or $6 million. And it's not like I don't think we should be expecting him to score 30 goals like uh, Nuge and Hyman are getting. I mean, he's not in their class. But he's a pretty pretty useful worker bee. And after seeing so many useless players signed as at forward over the years at the Oilers who come in and they just don't perform. I mean, I was expecting that from Yadmark almost. I've seen it so many times where they sign a veteran guy and he just doesn't perform. He's just not very good. I was I've just been surprised from word go with Jan Marco. Oh, this is a player. This guy knows he's he's a smart hockey player. He knows how to play defense. He he contributes on the attack. I was just it, right from the first time I saw him. 
in the regular season after he was recalled from the minors. Mm-hmm. Um, he's been doing well. And he's been part of a group of players, um, the bottom line brigade, who since since December 1st have doubled their rate of goal scoring collectively. Like they're getting twice as many goals per game as they got at the uh, start of the year. And um, this has made a huge difference for the Oilers. Yeah, and Mark and Costin, obviously, they're the, in McLeod. They're, they're, um, there's a number of them who have all picked up their scoring. Yamamoto uh, joined that group tonight. You know, the Big Five has been unreal all year long. And, uh, you know, Kane's been out much of the year. But, you know, the, the Big Four, I guess, has just been kicking butt all year long. But what has made a difference for the Oilers in terms of trying to win more is players like Yanmark and these other guys putting the puck in the net a little bit more, um, which is expected. They were they were really snake bitten at the start of the year. Bruce, your bad thing. What is it? Yeah, I think probably knowing where you're going with yours, which would also have been mine, but uh, I'm okay. going to just go with the last, just sort of the sloppy play down the stretch. But there always seem to be uh, well into the third period, dominating play and 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 just doing everything right, swarming the puck. And, uh, uh, I mean, I, I can recall one play. It looked like Winnipeg might be having a 2-1-1. And before you knew it, it was a 2-1-3, and the, the puck was battled out, you know, from the Oilers' slot, and it came up the boards. And I thought, some jet's going to come charging up the boards, and nobody's going to be near him, and he's going to come in and slam a shot. Nope, the fourth guy back was also an Oiler. Uh, Nugent Hopkins on this particular play, who cleaned up the, you know, the before Winnipeg could recover, get any kind of cycle going, and then he turned and he passed it to the fifth Oiler who was in center ice zone and, you know, a safe exit and pucks going in the right direction. They were doing that kind of thing uh, much of the game, just just uh, uh, being all around the puck, skating, uh, using their heads and their sticks and their and their you know, their uh, uh, their skates uh, and fairly dominating of the game, and then all of a sudden, with the boat, once it got to five nothing, they kind of <coughs> shut it off. And yeah. there were some real, you know, uh, kind of dog goals really that were scored by Winnipeg that got three in the last 14 minutes to make the score artificially close. I mean, this actually was a bit hey, of a blowout, but. Uh, Skinner wound up with a big three against him, and you know, I, I, I think maybe one there was kind of a, I think he was sort of was there a bad rebound? I think on on the one Skinner gave up a bad rebound. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, First goal uh, against. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was the one where McDavid and Bouchard McDavid were playing Alphonse and Gaston with the puck, and they were trying to hand it to each other, and they wound up both without the puck and not in any good position and it just went downhill from there and just a little focus thing and it's uh you know i mean obviously it didn't kill him but if this was a two two nothing game and on a five nothing game you know you can't afford to have that you know turn it off you just no don't do that but mind you this is this was oilers of the 80s they used to do this kind of stuff all the time It'd be seven two with five minutes left, and the final score would be seven four. And saying, well, Fury didn't play that well in this game. Well, <laughs> he probably turned it off too, right? Anyway, so that's 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 my minor, all right, my minor grievance they, about this game. The Jets, as I said, only had eight grade A shots, and it's in that it's in that thirteen 
minute, 14 minute period that they get five of them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, right. in the rest of the game, they only had three. The owners were totally, and right. on a certain level, Bruce, I kind of liked it psychologically that the Jets came back. It took a little bit of the, you know, their, their anger. Um, you know, they, they'll feel a little bit better about themselves, which I think is okay. Like maybe they'll be a little less um, motivated, you know, totally motivated for the next game. But uh, um, there was there was one other aspect that you know the you know you, you would have also picked as your bad thing um, was the Jets' um, chippy play, and and in some ways I admire the chippy like. Like if it was my if it was the Oilers down five nothing and they started to get a little dirty and chippy and nasty and hitting like doing plays over the edge I I would probably like it is the truth if I'm completely honest so I I I should say that but if, when it's against my team I don't like it and I especially don't like what the referees don't call it correctly that's what I think in the end that's what bothers me more in some ways than the Winni- what the Winnipeg players were doing if there had been proper penalties such as match penalties and game misconducts on at least well, frankly, on maybe three of these plays that I'm going to mention, all three of them, maybe at least two of them, um, I would be I wouldn't be that angry. But the the, the refs are, are negligent and incompetent at the same time, not calling match penalties. And I'm talking about Stanley's very dangerous and nasty hit on Derek Ryan, straight into the boards through the numbers. How that is not a match penalty and a game misconduct is beyond me. There's there's Morrissey's takedown of Drysaddle, which was a bit more run of the mill. Um, it's a delayed penalty. The refs actually called all three of these plays. Yeah, they were the penalties. Refs, but they were all minors. Yeah. And then and there to was, me, two of them were majors. Yeah. And then the third one, which in some ways, Stanley's was the worst, but there's a Finnish player on the Jets. And let me, I'll just pronounce his name. I think it's Meathead Alinen. Uh, <laughs> he cross-checked <laughs> Philip Broberg in the neck. Really vicious. Absolutely. Right in the vicious. Adam's apple, eh? Hey? Yeah, it should have been it should have been a match penalty. Like you like yeah. you just cross check someone right in the neck with your yeah. stick in front of them. How is that just throw the him out of the saw game? It. The ref saw it because he called it. And right at the standing one, that was my case to, uh chatting with my wife as usual. And I said, you know, they if the refs really want to cramp down on these last ten minutes, they should throw him out. Game, you know, the score is yeah. out of hand. And if they let that kind of stuff slide or even just call two minutes, there's going to be more of it. And there was more of it. So I'm, I'll am i give the refs something of a pass and that they called all the penalties. And they didn't just sort of go blind because Edmonton had a lead and they'd had a few power plays already and we got to manage the game. They called, uh, Oilers went two for eight in the power play in this game. So they scored two power play goals and their percentage went down. I mean, I think. They had a lot of chances. Yeah. And, they, you know, in Winnipeg, you know, they weren't very disciplined. They took a couple of dumb penalties, a couple of iffy ones, but these ones in the third were dirty. They really and were. they should have got they should have got more. And I hope player safety looks at it and at least slaps a fine on these guys or ideally a one game suspension since their next game is also against Edmonton. <laughs> that would be that would be nice for Stanley to get that and meet head alignment. You know, both of those guys should be out. Both of those guys should be out uh, for the next game. That would be that would be justice, and that's not going to happen either. Though they might get a fine. I could see maybe, maybe, maybe. yeah, maybe. unlikely. Yeah. Uh, Bruce, your numero. What is it? Yeah, well, I got two numbers, and they're related. They're three and four, and three is the number of goals that the Oilers scored against Connor Hellebuck in the last four games before tonight. 
that Winnipeg played in Edmonton. The first two games of their 2021 playoff series, when Winnipeg won 4-1 with two empty net goals in the first game, won nothing in overtime in the second game. Then last year, I went to the game. Uh, it was best goalie duel of the year that I saw, and it was uh, Halibut against Stuart Skinner when you know, November of uh, Skinner's sort of first run with the team. And the shots were something like 47 to 30-something for Winnipeg, and Skinner and Halibut went to a 1-1 tie right to the shootout, which Oilers won the shootout, but they only got one goal in the hockey game. And then the game here on New Year's Eve, uh, a couple months back, where Winnipeg beat Edmonton 2-1 in regulation. So you add it all up, and other than those two empty net goals in the first playoff game, 2-1, 1-0, and 2-1. So three goals in four games compared with four goals in two periods tonight to drive Hellebuck out of the net for the third period. So a major change in fortunes for the Oilers against the goal. They used to own this goalie right through that 2021 season until the playoff series. And then he turned it turned it around on them. And uh, uh, they scored a bit on him in Winnipeg, but for whatever reason, he's just owned the Oilers in Evan. I mean, imagine shutting down Connor McDavid and company to three goals in four entire games, consecutive games from his standpoint. So they that needed to be corrected. And a correction was issued in the first 40 minutes tonight to the tune of four goals, not to mention three crossbars and goalposts. And it was, uh, you know, it was a statement game delivered to Connor Hellebuck after he delivered several in a row to the Oilers. So, yeah, consider it. Number. <laughs> consider it corrected. All right, Bruce. Um, my uh, number revolves around Leon Dreisaitl's one-timer shots. He scored that great goal that I referred to, the first goal of the game. Mm-hmm. Absolutely fantastic one-timer shot from his from his favorite spot, which is like seems like right on the boards. <laughs> mm-hmm. His office, right on the boards. He just he's, he's just able to fire mm-hmm. the puck in, you know, get off this executioner shot where he lashes his stick uh, at the puck in the net, goes down to one knee and fires it in. So. Um, we track these these shots at the Cult of Hockey. So last year, Bruce, Leon Dreisaitl got off 56, 56 one-timer shots, and he scored 21 goals. 56 of them, 21 was for a 37.5 shooting percentage, uh, wow. percentage on the executioner shot. That's pretty good. This, this year, he's fired 35 harpoons, and he's uh, hit the back of the, the net 15 times. So this year he's at 42.8% shooting percentage oh, on these better. shots. And it's almost like, you know, for a while there, um, you know, earlier in the Scoring Chance Project, we would have a shot like that from outside. Uh, you know, I would say, well, that's way outside the Scoring Chance zone, Bruce. Right. Like, shouldn't count that. And you would always argue, no, well, you would say, I think, David, I think that he scores on a high percentage of those shots. The goalie's got to move to get over there and he hits the net. It's a hell of a tough save. Yeah, I'm here to tell you, you were correct, Bruce. <laughs> so you. another, you corrected. Uh, I've been corrected. And um, yeah, you were, you couldn't have been more right. I mean, when, when we're looking at a 40%, when we are looking at a 40% shooting percentage oh. on these, and we, and now we count, even if I don't think they, you know, to me, it's just yeah. like, I wouldn't normally count that on any other player as a grade A shot. 
Yeah, it's like Ovi wow. shooting from the sideboards on a yes. one-timer. You know, he's going to make that shot, even though it doesn't look like he should. And on our graded A shots, typically now, we're more. I'm more open to looking at who, and you, you've made this argument all along, and I'm more open to it now. Like, let's, you know, if it's Nathan McKinnon shooting it, or Patrick Lyony shooting it, or Ovechkin, you have to take that into consideration. Mm-hmm. And you have to try to gauge that in terms of grading. You know, we're, we're, we're doing this, on the, you know, we have guidelines and we have parameters and we have general rules, but we're also trying to be smart, as smart as we can, as smart as the human brain, two human brains can be, uh, you know, maybe so there'd be, yeah, there'd be, there'd be <laughs> other uh, human brains that would be a lot smarter on this than ours, but uh, we're doing our best. We're yep, putting, the effort 100%. And, um, and we're trying to get it right. And I think we are getting it more right. And, and um, it's amazing anyway, what Leon's doing. It is absolutely astonishing his accuracy. With with he has no time to get off this shot. It is a one timer. The puck is almost is often coming very fast. So he has the strength and the coordination um, to get off these shots. Which you know, we've seen other players try it. Yes, Apuliarvi, Nail Yakupov, Taylor Hall try to get off these one timer. They they they're just not they're not Hall's little bit better than those other two guys i should say but no one no one comes close connor mcdavid tries to get off one-timer shots no one comes close to being able to execute this like leon dreisaitl who is with yari curry in their own class in terms of of this kind of sh- i wonder what yari curry's shooting percentage i bet you it was around 40 percent as well which is why all those years yari curry shot about 25 percent year after year. four years in a row he was over 25 percent and seven years in a row he was over 20 percent i mean it was not unsustainable you know you look at the number and you say well he won't be able to sustain that except he did so yes there is something there is such a thing called sustainable shooting skill it mm-hmm. does exist yep. and we are seeing it in edmonton and mm-hmm. um you know, the, I remember earlier in the days of analytics, there was some like, well, you know, there, there, some people took a fairly hard line on this and they said there's no such thing as shooting skill. Like, it's just, you know, you, it's the number of shots you put at net and certain percentage go in. And if you're uh, high above that, it's unsustainable. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think people generally have moved off that. You don't hear yes. that anymore. No, and um, and um, Leon Dreisaitl is the reason why, one of the reasons why. Yeah, well, sometimes you hear that a PDO of 1,000 is expected, which is just shooting percentage plus save percentage, where, you know, both teams shoot at the same rate, you would have a 1,000. And that anything way above that or way below that is luck. And I'll grant you, uh, much of it probably is luck and the randomness that we see in hockey, but some of it is very much sustainable. And sometimes it's just that if you have, you know, a goalie that's just way above the standard, your team should have a PDO higher than a thousand because your goal is going to stop a higher percentage of shots than the other goalies going to, or all the other goalies combined are going to. And similarly, if you have a shooter uh, with a particular skill, or for that matter, even a, a, a terrific playmaker with a gift for setting up very high quality scoring chances, uh, you would have a uh, uh, expectation that they're going to ex- outscore expectations. This is why you see a guy like Leon Dreisel and you look at his expected goals column, which is just sort of saying, this is where the shots are coming from. You should score at this rate. And his actual goals for percentage is higher. And it's higher because he both scores more with his own shot and he sets up a higher grade of opportunities for teammates to shoot than uh, uh, the average. And so 
of course, it's his uh, results in the real goals column are more than expected by comparing him to average because he ain't average. So. I remember the first we, we heard the argument about um, unsustainable shooting with Leon Dreisettle as recently as 2018 19. Mm-hmm. I'm going to suggest his first year of scoring 50 goals. Mm-hmm. He had scored 25 the year before. Yep. And he's, uh, he had scored 25 goals on 12.9 shooting percentage. And the year he scored 50 at a 21.6% shooting percentage. And I, and it was, and it's I think it was changed since. Yeah. And his shooting percentages have since then have been 19.7, 18.5, 19.8 and 19.9. He's a model of consistency in terms of shooting around 20% right now. And um, I think that year we started to make the argument at, at our blog that mm-hmm. this, we thought it was sustainable because we're charting this and we're seeing this trend in his shooting. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he's he's just able to sink these shots. Um, he gets a certain kind of shot, one-timer shots. I think it was one of the impetuses to start tracking the, like the mm-hmm. type of shot. You know, we've evolved our system of uh, tracking right. grade A shots over the years and we track more stuff and we track things differently than in the past. But it was one of those moments where we just started to realize that, like, yeah, there really is sustainable shooting skill and Leon Dreidel has proven that and to be fully transparent uh we only count shots that are on goal yes uh, so when he has a shot like that and misses the target which happens mm-hmm. a, you know a fair percentage of the time because the target's about this wide from the angle he's looking at it and he misses the target well we don't count that as a scoring chance so we only count the ones that are on goal and if you were counting all the ones that he shot from there, then those percentages would go down, but they would still be high, I, I would submit, because uh, he hits the net more often than he misses it. And he hits the net almost as often as he hits the goalie. That's a good point. And of course, <laughs> shooting percentage is also based on shots on net, yes. rather than just total shots. Shot so, attempts, yeah. yeah. In the finish yeah. league, they do it on Corsi, and the shooting percentages are way low compared to what well, we're used to seeing in other leagues. Uh, but the number of, sh- of shots credited to the player is way high because they're counting all the attempts. So it's just another way of uh, of doing it. And, you know, we didn't have advanced stats from the Oilers age. We didn't know what they were. But uh, uh, I spent some time in the uh, when we were first doing uh, this sort of thing, looking back to the Oilers of the 80s. And, of course, we didn't have individual stats at all. We didn't have Corsi or Fenwick. We had shots on goal and we had goals. But, you know, every damn year, the Oilers would have a PDO of like 1050, where their shooting percentage would be 5% higher than their opponents. The Oilers shot over 15% as a team seven years in a row. That's pretty wow. sustainable. And they led the league, I think, all seven of those years. I know there was one year where the second-place team, Philadelphia, behind the Oilers, was closer to the last-place team than they were to the first-place team. The Oilers' gap was just so much that they, you know, they were just off in another area. Their their shots were just that much likelier to go in. And if they came even close to even level shots in a game, they were pretty pretty strong bet to win it. I remember you making that argument earlier in this, you know, when the, that debate was raging about a decade mm-hmm. ago yep. about whether there's, you know, whether shooting is a skill or whether it's just, mm-hmm. you know, um, pound the shots at net and a certain percentage going to go. And you were saying you were brought up the orders of that era. And it always made sense to me what you're talking about. Well, we saw uh, it. I mean, we they, saw it. they took yeah. high, they yeah. took high, high danger shots and they were, they were deadly shooters to boot and they buried a lot of them. Yeah. So. Alrighty, Bruce. Um, you know, by and large, though, 
you know, to give the other side of the argument credit, by and large, you know, when she, people on a on a hot shooting streak, it's not sustainable. Yes. Like Clean Costin this year, for instance. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got 10 goals. He's been really good shooting. He's been like unbelievably hot shooting. But do I think he's like Leon Dreisaitl? No, I, I don't think it's sustainable. And I think anyone raising that, like, be careful about giving Clean Costin a contract based on this kind of goal scoring rate. They are making, general, in general, you're making a really good point when you make that argument. It's been actually one of the primary contributions of, I think, that analytics movement is to make that argument. And 90% of the time, probably 85, 90% of the time, you're right. Maybe even higher than that. The players like Drysaddle are the exception to the rule. And um, I think Clean clean Costin is going to fit within the rule. Is my guess, even though like he looks so good and his shots look so good, but you know I don't think it is sustainable, and and uh, they should pay him with that in mind and be, and be careful about um, giving him a longer term contract based on the you know mm-hmm. his goal scoring rate this year. So, did you want to talk a little bit about the trade deadline and the? Oh yeah, we could talk about. Um, we <coughs> excuse me, we've already talked about Ekholm, but they did make another right. move. Yeah, they brought in Bukestad. Um, mm-hmm. He's about, what is he six six two ten? He's a um, right shot center. Um, gets in hard on the forecheck. I hear has a good shot. Brian Lawton was saying he's got a really good shot. He's he's had years where he's had, um, you know, he looks like a you know the the typical ten to fifteen goal scorer per year kind of third line fourth line player. Um, mm-hmm. I I don't really know his game at all. So I, I'm limited in what I can say about it, but I'm I do like the idea of a great big center coming in, and I was wondering I was trying to remember when was the last time, if ever, have the Oilers ever had a six 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 five center? And and someone pointed out the obvious, Jason Arnott from the uh, the 90s, he was six five, and they also had Bon Senior who never really made it, who was a high draft pick, and he was six four, but Arnott didn't last long here, and the Oilers, you know. This kind of player mm-hmm. can have an impact on a game. Like it's, you know, it's, I just, I think having these big guys out there helps in tough playoff games. And um, mm-hmm. I like to see him go head to head into the faceoff circle against a big tough guy like Adam Lowry, for instance. And um, so that I like the idea. Yeah. What do you yeah. think? Well, I <clears throat> I like a lot about the player in theory, and I can't I can't say I spent a lot of time studying him play games, but. I look at his stats. He's got 260 points in uh, 599 games on on a per 82 basis. That works out to 17 goals, 18 assists per season, 35 points. And out of all that, he's only got, you know, uh, 19 power play goals in his career. So it's not like he's feasting off of special teams. And the large majority of his goals and points come at uh, at five on five. So that's pretty good production. For a guy, you know, mostly down the lineup, he plays most years. He's around 13, 14, 15 minutes per game. So he's a, been a regular, uh, but not a, you know, not a top six guy that you know normally see in the 18 minute range. And uh, uh, he can play right wing. He can play center, but a right shot center, which the Oilers kind of needed. And he kind of checks a lot of boxes. He was killing penalties in Arizona. You know, he's sort of 48% on the face-off dot, which isn't great. But when you don't have any, you know, you've got one right-hand shot and little Derek Ryan to have another option 
a big, you know, someone you can put out against the Adam Lowry's of the world, as you were saying, uh, isn't the worst thing. And here's the thing about this. Uh, uh, people have been ripping on Ken Holland a lot, first of all, for not doing anything or then being underwhelmed with his moves. Well, this is what happened at forward for the Edmonton Oilers at the trade deadline. The first trade they made, they, they sent out Yasapoli Arby. Every cent of his $3 million contract got sent out. Uh, and the five-goal scorer, and I love Yessa, don't get me wrong, but just, just consider these as numbers. Five-goal scorer, $3 million a year, traded away, none retained, no big salary coming back, but a small asset, you know, a, a probably gravy prospect. And then two days later, uh, Holland goes out and he trades for a uh, 13 goal uh, forward <coughs> who can play right wing, can take the same position, even bigger than Pugliarvi, older, more experienced. You know, there's, there's, he's going to have flaws, no doubt. I mean, he might be the next Alex Chase on for all I know, but he's and he had flaws, but he also had uses. But here's the thing. He goes on the payroll at 50% of $900,000 that he's earning, $450,000 for a 13-goal score to replace the five-goal score that was $3 million against the payroll. With those two trades, Oilers created basically $2.5 million in cap space, and they used that cap space to bridge the difference in the contracts between uh, the defensemen that they traded, Barry out at 4.5, Ekholm in at 6, well, you need $1.5 million to do that. Well, he created that $1.5 million uh, by making that trade. And, you know, he's got a player now on his payroll that's uh, got a cap hit of $450,000 in a seven fifty minimum league. And of the all the trades that he's made at the deadline now since um, uh, uh, the year that Clefbaum first went on LTIR, He's made, he's brought in uh, five players and every single one of those players had retention and four of the five had 50% retention. Only Ekholm with the little 4% that just created enough $250,000 that they needed. And literally the cap hit that's remaining for the Edmonton Oilers right now is $0. They spend as far to the cap as they possibly could. They were 165 bucks short at the beginning of the season, so they can only go up to that, and that's where they are today, right at that tight as possible to the cap. And they've got 22 men on the roster that was down to 20 and using emergency players a couple of days ago. Well, now those emergency players are on the payroll, and they, you know, they're not subject to getting moved out the minute someone else comes back. They actually have flexibility, and they can change change roster from one game to the next again and, and and operate like a normal team and i think that's some uh uh some there's some pretty tidy management in there i gotta say it and i know there are people out there oh but Ken Holland's asleep at the wheel uh so and w- one more thing to get off my chest on this <laughs> Okay. I keep reading on Twitter. Well, they always said they were going to go all in, and they didn't go all in. Damn it! It's a nice trade for Ekholm, but, 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 but. And I look at the, I look at the team, and I look at the draft choices. Let's pull that back up under cap friendly. So this is a team that traded uh, 
Well, the 2022 draft choices that they had, the first rounder got traded now, right? Uh, Ginger Beef. Um, Reed uh, Schaefer. Schaefer. He got traded in the uh, trade for Ekholm. Uh, the second round pick last year was traded at last year's deadline for Brett Kulak. The third round pick from last year was traded at the beginning of last season uh, for Duncan Keith. The fourth round pick from last year was traded the previous deadline for uh, the big Russian there, Dmitry Kulikov. So all four of those draft picks got traded for veteran defensemen to help the Oilers right now. So they're gone. And you look ahead to 2023, and I'll just keep it simple. First four rounds, 2023 first rounder traded for Ekholm. They've got their second rounder. Their third rounder is gone. Uh, that would have been the uh, that would have been the trade for Bugstad. The fourth rounder is gone in the Ekholm trade, and even next year the third and the fourth round picks are gone, and so they have mortgage the future. I mean, what does all in mean? Does it mean trade every single one of your draft choices? What the hell do you want them to trade next year at the deadline if all the draft choices are gone? You got to keep some of that capital around. And who are the terrible players that you want to replace anyway? Like, like I guess they don't. It's people who don't like Matthias Janmark who just think maybe like I don't know. Like, I I I disagree with their assessment of some of the players. I'm not seeing a lot of players who aren't very good on the orders. I see mm-hmm. every player, even Devin Shore, who I've been picking on this year. Um, he's been playing really well the last few games. He's he's been coming up after Logan Stanley tonight. Eh? Yeah. He's he's been doing he's been he's been going for it. He's trying mm-hmm. to earn another contract and he's he's making his move. So I don't see the gaping holes that you needed to fix in this lineup. They, you know, well, they, they they did fix the, the one they but needed. They Kulak Kulak didn't step up. I like Philip Broberg a ton, but it's asking a lot of him to step up in the playoffs. You know, and and what what did they bring in? A, a player who's who, so far, you know, his first impression on the team, Matthias Ekholm. He's just, a, just such a fine defensive hockey player. Exactly, a great big guy. Like they've 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 gone. They're huge on the blue line. Six seven, one six seven guy, two six four guys, two six three guys, a six two guy and a six one guy. They have probably one of the biggest blue lines in the NHL now. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I I I don't know what else, like. Listen, there's only one other team that I kind of envy at the trade deadline, and it's not the New York Rangers. It's the LA Kings. I like I like them bringing in Eunice Corposalo, and if the Oilers have a whole, you know, let's, let's, it's in net, like it's, it's the, the potential for disaster for the Oilers is poor goaltending. And, well, and you can hold that truth. contract, the Jack Campbell contract on Ken Holland. It's on his record. Yeah. He's made mistakes. You know what? The first press conference that he came in here, one of the things he promised us was I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm going to make more good moves than bad moves is how we're going to make progress. And he made no bones about it. He said, you can't be perfect in this world. But, I mean, the Jack Campbell does look like a mistake, and it might be a fatal one. But what yeah. he's done at the deadline, when you when when you talk about going all in, I mean, that was just an absolutely mammoth price that they paid to get Ekholm. Yes. But, boy, yeah. does, he look, does he look good. He does and, look good. And, and they have Stuart Skinner in that, Stuart Skinner, mm-hmm. and he is playing well. Like, he's he's been at least league average. He's, I think he's above league average goalie yes. in terms of save percentage this year. Yes. He's a fun, he can, he, you know, you only need one goalie to win the Stanley Cup because, you know, goalies tend to play every, often they play. 
mm-hmm. every game in the playoffs. So it might not it might not be the thing if Stuart Skinner can step up or if Jack Campbell can can somehow rebound. And he's going to have you know a number of starts for the rest of the season. We'll see how he mm-hmm. does. And you know he did have a good stretch of six or seven games where he 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 played well. So it's not that much, and it hasn't been that encouraging. But um, um, you know, as as many people say, as many people say, goaltending is voodoo. And as bad as Jack Campbell is this year, maybe next year he will rebound and he will be back next year. He's not going to be bought out this summer, um, not on a, not on that length of contract. And um, they, and they need to see if he can come through next year. And if he can't, maybe he'd go to the minors then, right? At that point, um, and maybe see what else happens. But he'll be back and maybe he'll rebound. But you're right. At this point, it looks like a loss. So this is why I was a little jealous of. The LA Kings picking up Corpus Allo. Yeah. Uh, he, that was he, a killer of a trade, David. A cold, really was. You have to be a cold-blooded son of a gun to trade out Jonathan Quick after all those years to Columbus of all places. But just just look at the you know the cold-blooded uh, results. They had a big problem in net. Uh, they got Jonas Corpus Allo, who's been playing well, as Edmonton fans can readily attest. Uh, yeah. 1.3 million dollars. It's on a show-me contract that expires at the end of the world uh, year, and he's looking to show whoever, and now he's going to show the Kings what he's got. They had a big problem at left defense. They got a, they got a, a ton of good righties in L.A., not a lot of left-handed uh, D-men, except your, your, your favorite, Mikey Anderson. And uh, they brought in Vladislav Gavrikov. They sent out uh, Jonathan Quick at full salary, and from that trade, not only did they fix two problems and sort of get rid of a problem, and that Quick was Quick was having poor results, and he had this sort of legacy with the team. And now that's severed. <laughs> uh, so they actually came out of that that trade, solving two problems, and they were plus 1.7 million dollars in cap space from that trade. Now that is a trade. So with all the difference between them, of course, and our trades, we, we were dealing, uh, the guy we got with, had term, buying down term. And there's so many problems with, with, with that. You, you just have to pay kind of full price. And the Kings, you know, they had a bad contract. And Jonathan Quick, the Oilers don't have any $5 million contracts. Well, they have the goalie who's got four more years to run. They don't have bad ones. Those guys are mostly delivering the goods. Well, Kings had a bad one. They moved it out. They got two players and cap space back that are all going to help. And that, to me, that's the trade of the deadline. Cold-blooded yeah, I, son of a gun made that trade. And I blame and, my uh, friend Rob Ballman, who's in the analytics uh, uh, well, business with the LA Kings. And uh, that is something that a cold-blooded analyst would say, yeah, we got to do this. Well, apparently, Dowdy, <laughs> I didn't see this, but my, my uh, buddy was telling me that... Um, Doughty and Kopitar were just choked, absolutely yeah. choked to see their good friend quick. And I hope they are, and I hope it destroys the team. Um, <laughs> well, in that case, it won't be a good trade. Yeah, it won't be. But it, <laughs> here's the thing about Corpus Alibris. There may be, just because of our um, a, a cognitive bias on our part, we've seen Corpus Allo so good this year in two Stone games, right? He's, he's absolutely stolen a couple games from the Oilers. And, um, but he... He's a career 903 save percentage goalie. Um, last year, his save percentage was 877. This year, it's 913. So he's not Bernie Perrant. He had, you know, he, he's he's been he's had two fantastic games against the Oilers, and he's been about the same as Stuart Skinner overall this year. 
you know, say save percentage, if you just go by that, which is, you know, fairly decent rule of thumb um, measurement of a goalie. So, um, you know, we might be, I'm just saying we might be overestimating as, a, you know, the, the beneficial mm-hmm. nature of that trade just a little bit. And I, I certainly oh. hope that we. But he's hot and the contract's expiring and it's just yeah. you know, a better solution than what they had, which was Phoenix Copley and, and a fading Jonathan Quick and that guy Cal Peterson, who they had high hopes and invested a big contract. And he's in the minors. He was so bad. They still have so, his contract, fortunately. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, they, they brought in Corpusallo and they, you know, anyway, that was uh, a trade that really stood out to me for, for value. Yeah, short, I agree. Short term value, but it made the Kings a lot more dangerous, and that's very relevant in the Pacific Division. Um, Cal Peterson has two more years left on a deal that pays him $5 million a year. Yes. That sounds familiar. The dollars, anyway. Yeah. <sighs> fingers crossed, Bruce. Fingers crossed. All right. We'll be back tomorrow night with the. Uh, I think Campbell's going to go tomorrow. I guess Hellebuck could probably, because he rested the third period, they'll yeah. go with him, but. Uh, Yep. We'll see how that goes. Be nice to nice to get the sweep. That's for sure. It would be nice, and it would be nice for Jack Campbell to have a good game. He, he I mean, he did have a good run of games there, and then he's mm-hmm. he's kind of regressed the last few. So we'll see what Thanks, happens. Yeah. Thanks for talking tonight, Bruce. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. Stop it.